Well, if you have your Bible with you this evening, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. We enter the last and final chapter of this epistle this evening, and it's a blessing to do so as we consider the truth in it. 2 Peter chapter 3, we will be considering verses 1 through 9. 1 through 9. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the illuminating work of your Spirit. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one that opens our eyes to see, opens our ears to hear, and to understand. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would be in great work this evening. Oh Lord, this passage is so rich, so full, and we pray that we would glean and that we would absorb and take with us that which your holy word declares. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, but by which the world that then existed perished, perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, people of God, false teachers are good showmen. We've seen that in chapter 2 quite a bit, haven't we? They put on a good act. They know what to say. They know what to do to be effective lures to their targets and intended victims. Like skilled counterfeit fishermen who know which lures work well to catch different fish, so too false teachers have honed their craft, so they come in and they dwell amongst the sheep, they poison their minds, and they draw them away from the flock. They draw them away from their shepherds, even the good shepherd, if they could. And what did Peter say their deception looks like? Well, in part, with their words, they make lofty promises. And yet their words are like 
bulging balloons only full of hot air. And they're like pinatas that kids get excited about, only to find that they're empty when they break apart. Their promises are vain, and they're void of any satisfaction. The false teachers promise liberty, but it isn't Christian liberty. Remember what Christian liberty really is. It's the liberty Jesus has purchased for us to serve and obey him. And so as these deceivers are slaves of their own corruption, Peter makes clear what is true for them. As unrepentant backsliders, they are in the end more culpable than those who never made a profession of faith in the first place. They are apostates, those who have turned their backs on Christ. And Peter's point is that apostasy is far worse than ignorance. Now to know the righteous way and to turn from it is far worse than not knowing it at all. For in turning away, they in essence condemned that glorious way of righteousness and showed themselves to despise Christ's commands. These people returning to their old sins and lifestyles shows that though they had the knowledge of God, they were never truly changed by his saving grace. And considering Peter's full exposure of these false teachers, he now goes on to reiterate and to remind the saints of the wonder and the solid foundation of God's promises, especially of those regarding the last days, regarding what will happen to the heavens and the earth, as well as the day of judgment. And so tonight, let's look at being mindful of Peter and the Apostles' words in verses 1 and 2. What Peter said about scoffers in the last days in 3 through 7, as well as God's not being slack in his promise in 8 and 9. Look at me there with verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminders. Now, Peter here reminds the saints about who they are first. He addresses them here towards the end of his letter, again pointing out that they are beloved. They are those who are loved by Peter and loved by their Lord. And remember Peter's words in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, where he speaks about this special status that God's people have with the living God. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Such a wonderful Relationship, such a wonderful status change that God has made for his people. We are his own special people. We are his chosen people. We are those who did not have mercy, but now have mercy from God. But he also tells them why he wrote to them. Peter said, to stir them up. And again, how? By way of reminders. Here yet again we see the importance that Peter is pressing of reminders. 
Remember Peter's words earlier in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, where he said, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, he said, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. Remember about how we talked about that great blessing of having reminders through the apostles, through the writers of Scripture, from the living God, regarding what we must believe about Him, how we must live, all of these things, all of these things that serve to teach us, to grow us, to enlighten us, but also to guard us and to protect us. We see that here in Peter bringing this up again. Don't forget the reminders that I'm giving you, he says. And it's good and helpful for Peter to raise this now, isn't it? And why? Well, notice his words. Peter desired to stir up what? Their pure minds. Their pure minds. In saying this, Peter knew that his brothers and sisters were sinners. Right? He, he didn't have momentary amnesia. He knew that. However, knowing Christ's redeeming work for them, his cleansing and purifying work, knowing his transformative work of renewing our minds, he's giving them, his, Christ's giving them true Christian liberty, coupled with his knowledge of the false teachers, polluting and corrupting efforts. This made Peter's ministry to stir up and to remind God's people all the more essential and important, right? This multi-layered uh, situation, this, this multi-layered picture that we are in and, and why this is so helpful to us is really pressed in and ingrained. And so think of this. This is also true for us in many ways today. We desperately and daily need the work of the Spirit and Word in our hearts and minds to restore and to maintain purity, to protect, to deal with, to get any of the pollution within out, which so often is accompanied by way of divine reminder. This is one way in which God accomplishes these things, as his truth is put before us yet again, as his truth is put into our memories as it as we are reminded yet again over and over and over again what is true and what he desires and what we must do and what he does for us. This is all helpful to deal with these things, to protect, to get the sin out, etc. And so what does Peter say is the specific purpose of his reminders in support of purity? Look at verse 2. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. You know, throughout the centuries, Christ's church has been grounded and called to stand on the teachings and the commands of the holy prophets and apostles. For they were men called and sent by God himself to be his mouthpiece, to be his witnesses, to be his messengers of truth and ministers of grace to his people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, respectively. And where else do we see this to be true in Scripture? We'll look, for example, at Acts chapter 2, 
verses 40 through 42. What did the saints do there? We read there beginning in verse 40. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued, notice, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. This is what they did. This was helpful. The teachings of the apostles, the teachings of the prophets, the teaching of the Lord through his messengers was helpful to keep his people on track, steadfast, firm, and following and standing upon what they needed to. They were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we read there, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And notice verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, this passage is a very... A helpful passage. It, it, it partners with, it parallels the truth that Paul communicated to the church in Corinth that we examined this morning, doesn't it? Regarding us being God's building, us being God's temple, us being built upon the solid foundation of Christ, us being built on the solid foundation of the teachings of the apostles and the prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone. A wonderful truth, and it's one that we must continue to stand on, though the world and the false teachers are pulling us in the other directions, right? They're, they're trying to woo us to follow them, and not Christ, not to stand upon Him. And so as we are grounded on the teaching and commands of such men, it's one thing to say that we're grounded, it's another to know what their doctrines and commands are, that we can consistently apply them in our lives and continue to be grounded in the midst of the waves of the pressing falsehood. Because the falsehood is continuing to crash against us. Continuing to crash against our families and the church. Right? So this is so where we pitch our flag. This is where we are steadfast. In the teaching, on the foundation of the apostles, and the prophets, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. But further, says, Peter says that we are to be mindful, notice. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their lusts. Now we've seen Peter deal with and, and really paint a picture of this immoral and sexually immoral and, and the, the great lusts that the false teachers lived in and, and were promoting and, and trying to draw the saints away with, right? We've seen that quite a bit in chapter 2, very thorough uh, treatment of that. But Peter says that we need to be mindful and know this. We need to have the knowledge so that we're prepared. We, we see what's coming. We, we see what's going on for what it really is. For the last days, which are the time between Jesus' first and second coming, 
They've long been foretold to be those in which we will find false teachers rise up. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And isn't this so true of the false teachers as well? They creep into the fold. They try to defile the flock. They bring in the pollution. They bring in the sin. They bring in the false doctrine. They make it look all nice and flashy, all appealing. And then they set the bait. And the bait is taken. And then they walk away. They leave. They were never of us, though they were among us, John says. So those who are against Christ are scoffers. They're proud mockers who scorn Christ and the godly who have been long oppressed. Proverbs 21, verse 24 says this. A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. Psalm 119, verse 51. The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Ah, yes. Yes. Reinforcing exactly what Peter is pointing us to. We take the stand here. We do not turn aside from the law of God. We follow his instructions, his directions, his commands, his laws, precepts to the T. That's what we're called to do as the church. The proud will do what they will do. But we stand on Christ. You know, scoffer is an apt term for the false teachers, isn't it? With their actions, it's clear that they love to walk in their lust and defiled flesh in sharp rebellion against the commands of Christ and the teachings of the apostles regarding God's people and how God's people must live. With their words, they deny their teachings as they question God's coming judgment. And in verse 4, Peter goes on to say, And saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So my friends, these scoffers heard the promise, but they tried to raise doubt regarding God's judgment and return, claiming that centuries have passed since creation without the judgment and glory of the judgment of God, let alone the return of Christ predicted by the prophets. And therefore they claim to be comfortable in denying it will ever happen. And you should come along with me and believe me, they say. And yet Peter says there is something that they're missing. Look at verse 5. For this they will they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. And by which the world that then existed perish, being flooded with water. See the willful 
oversight. It isn't just a haphazard memory lapse. It isn't just a one in a million forgetfulness. No, they willfully forget, he says. The willful overlooking that the scoffers do to make such a claim is notable. And so Peter raises a clear counterpoint to their claim. And in this counterpoint, we will see three views of the heavens and earth. First, a view of the past. Second, a view of the present. And third, a view of the future, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, in the following verses. But regarding God's work in the past, the scoffers are willingly ignorant of God's creating the world by his word, by the word of his power. Psalm 33, 6 speaks to this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. That is how the world, the universe, came to be. By the word of his power. By the breath of his mouth. Praise the Lord. But they're also willingly ignorant, Peter says, of the earth's destruction by a worldwide flood, which Peter just spoke of and God's not sparing in the days of Noah, didn't he, in chapter 2, verse 18. In verse 7, he says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And so here is God's work in the present. It's important to recognize and to remember God's upholding and preserving work now. By his same word. God is holding everything, every piece of matter, every subatomic particle, every atom is being held in the remotest parts of the universe, including the heavens and the earth, by the living God. He is preserving and upholding all things by that same word, his word. That doesn't blow our minds. We need to think again. Further, see that the heavens and earth are preserved and reserved. Preserved and reserved. The same powerful word that created the universe is just as active today, preserving the universe carrying it according to God's plan of consummation at judgment. The writer to the Hebrews teaches us of the work of Christ and such preservation. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is upholding all things by the word of his power. You are sitting here thinking, smiling, breathing. You exist this second and any second in the future by the word of his power and his upholding and preserving work. 
And so it's interesting that the creation that God is preserving for that day also has a reservation. It has a reservation for destruction. As it's reserved for fire, Peter says. And we'll consider this more next week. But Peter goes on to specifically address the scoffer's claim that God is slack in his promises. God is slack in his promises, they say. Where is this promise of God, they claim. Look at verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Psalm 90 verse 4 speaks again about this thousand years. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. And like a watch in the night. The saints view here, and in our view, it must be clear. There, here is another occasion where our memories must be sharp. We, we see this over and over again in this passage. Know this. Don't forget this. I've written you both of these epistles to remind you of very important things. But he's saying here, our memories must be sharp. That we must be mindful of the fact that God is never late. God is never late. He is never rushed. He is never impatient in waiting. Remember, the eternal God is transcendent. He is above time. He is outside of time. He is not limited by it. For the scoffers would have us believe that God is late. Right? That was really the answer that they were hoping to hear from people regarding their question. Yeah, I guess so. God is late. No. They would say he isn't timely in his response to sin and wickedness, that his judgment is delayed. Maybe, therefore, he isn't all-powerful, they would propose. He is slack or, or slow, as they claim. Maybe he doesn't care, others would say. But notice verse 9. There's a very clear answer to any of those statements. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So yet Peter recalibrates the human view of time and divine timeliness here, doesn't he? If one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day to God, if his view of time is much different than ours because he is the Lord of time, he is the creator of time, we must wait on him. And further, what some view as slowness and delay, Peter remarkably frames as what? Long-suffering and patience. Hmm. Think upon that and meditate upon that this week, beloved. As we get this grand picture of the patience of God. And especially in this context. 
regarding the salvation of his people. And why has and, and why does God show such patience? Peter says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now some take this verse to support the Arminian teaching that God desires all men to be saved without exception. However, as we look at Peter's words and the context, we find this claim to not be what Peter's teaching. In the preceding phrase, Peter says God is long-suffering towards whom? Toward us. And who is the us? It's the audience that Peter wrote to. It's the saints. It's the believers in Christ, of whom Peter includes himself as one of, notice, us. Not just y'all, but us. And therefore, the true message of this verse is that God is patient with his people because he isn't willing that any of his people should perish, but that in his timing, all of his elect will come to repentance and be saved. Praise the Lord. God is patient because he cares for each and every one of his lambs, and in his due timing, they will repent and be saved. You can take that to the bank. And therefore, the perfect living God can never be rightly claimed as being slack or slow. But only as patient and faithful. Patient and faithful. He's patient and he's faithful to keep his promises. And this is one of those very promises. And therefore, we must be patient. And in that patience, never doubting his faithfulness to carry out each and every one of his promises, even those regarding judgment. David said in Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15, he says, as, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Here is David, humbling himself before the Lord. He knows what is pressed against him and who seeks to kill him. But yet he says, my time is in your hand, Lord. You number my days. I trust in you. Deliver me, I pray, Lord, he says, from the hand of my enemies and those who persecute me. But he says all of these things knowing that he is in the Lord's hand. And so are each one of you. So am I. Psalm 37, verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not forget because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Sometimes it's very easy to be unrestful because of all the wickedness and the wicked that we see around us and we see them prospering, we see them rising up. But yet we are to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. In many ways, this is the counter to the claim and to the accusation of, where is the Lord and what is he doing? Because 
He hasn't done anything according to his promises like the false teachers said. No, no. He will. He is. He is patient. He will save all of his people, and I wait patiently because I know the Lord is faithful. That has a lot of application in other areas of our life, doesn't it? I'll leave you with this. Welcome divine reminders, beloved. Welcome them with open arms. Receive them and study them. Embrace them and live according to them. Why? Because they keep us grounded in the truth and protect us from the deception of the world and those that teach it. As was true of the ancient church, we too must continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. We too must remember and continue to stand on the pillars of the teachings and the commands of the prophets and apostles. But also see God's creative work. God's creative judging and preserving work over his creation and praise him for it. Never forget that God's timing and ways aren't ours. And continue to trust him and wait patiently, knowing that he has been, is, and always will be faithful to keep and to carry out his promises. When the time is right, after all of his people have been gathered in, Christ will return and bring final judgment. We can rest assured of this. Praise and give, all God, give God all glory for that. 